Hey, welcome back to part two of the one rule to having perfect relationships. If you were not with us last week, we began a discussion on what it might look like to have perfect relationships and how they can be attainable. We learned very briefly to recap that we were made in the image of a right-relating God who functions as three persons and one being bound together in self-sacrificing, deferring, self-sacrificial love. Which means, then, if we are made in the image of this God, that we are most human when we love. That is what defines our humanity, and so we are most human when we love. But we all know how the story goes, even if you don't know how the story goes. You've experienced that this is not typically the default, right? This is not typically how human inter- humans interact with one another. It's not the mode that we function from. We bite and claw and fight and use and abuse and manipulate and coerce. Others so that we can get what we want. We are self-centered, self-focused, self-reigning black holes with hearts bent in on themselves who determine the value of others based on how they align with our own personal preferences and how they can do good for us. And these, my friends, these self-reigning hearts, which we all have, are at the very center of every imperfect relationship. Kind of a stark truth, but something we need to come to grasp with, something we need to own, something we need to acknowledge something we need to seek forgiveness from. Now, you might be thinking, Ross, this seems kind of harsh. It seems kind of dark, Ross. Uh, Come on, I think we're pretty good people. And, you know, Emily and I comment on on this all the time. Like, we think that Restoration Church has some of the best people on the planet here, okay? Like, you are some of the the best people, right? We're we're generous, and we're caring, and we're loving, and we're patient. And you just, you you look so good also, by the way. Like, that's just a, a plug for you. But, like, we are just, we have some really, really phenomenal people here. And I get that sentiment, right? And from a worldly perspective, I really do agree. I really do agree with that. And I hope myself and my family, which includes you all, we will allow the love of God to illuminate every dark corner that we have, and we will allow the goodness that, you know, we think that we have, that we reveal to the world. We would allow that to be true of our hearts and not just of our appearance. Because I think that's really the challenge sometimes, that we would really allow God to function through us, and that we would function like God functions. You know, Emily and I are told that we're some of the good ones. We're told, hey, you guys are really good. You know, like, you're such a good pastor. Like, it's, it's, it's so great. Like, the church that you're leading is such a good church, and the community is such a great community. But here's what becomes very evident in series like this. Whenever I preach series like this, um, I tend to become a really horrible person. Oh, it's true. She says it herself. It's funny. It's, no, it's funny, right? It's just, um, I don't know if it's the time of the year. Yeah, it is. I don't know if it's the amount of um, extracurricular activities on top of the extra school activities, on top of the extra sporting activities, on top of the extra church activities. And there's just no time in the day to actually breathe, you know? I don't know if it's the stress of the crowded streets and the crowded shopping centers. I don't know if it's the diet I'm on. <laughs> I don't know if it's the lack of sleep I've getting. I, I don't know. I don't know entirely what it, oh, certainly, certainly it's the fact that we are in a spiritual war. Okay. Like that's, that's a big part of it. Um, when we get to series like this, but I have just been cranky and I have been grumbly and I've just been plain mean. Like this past week, since we started the series, I've just been kind of plain mean. I, I left you last week with this with this plea, like this challenge that we are in everything that we do and every experience that we have and every interaction that we come across, we are to, do you guys remember? Ask ourselves, what does love 
require of me. And so, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I, I send you guys out with this challenge, and then, and then I go home, right? I'm, I, and I agree, like, this is the same challenge upon me. Like, I want to do this as well. And so I go home, and I, you know, what, what would I, I need to ask myself, what would setting aside my agenda and my control look like to make room for someone else? And what does it mean to defer my preference to somebody else's choice, right? These are kind of the questions we ask when we ask, what does love require of me? And I get home, and I'm tired because I've been up since five, and my daughter, my beautiful, beautiful, precious daughter, Sophia, my six-year-old daughter, she, she wants to play a game with me. And isn't it so precious? Like, she's not always going to want to play games with me, right? Oh, she wants to play a game with me. And like, oh, she's like, she's so cute there. Daddy, you want to come play a game with me? And I look at her and I said, no. I don't want to play a game with you. I want to sit here on the couch and watch the Eagles lose to the really, really horrible team that the Dolphins are, okay? No, I don't want to play a game with you. Literally, after just telling you all that we all need to go into the world and show the love of Christ, I look at my six-year-old daughter in the face and say, no. I'm not going to play a game with you. I don't want to play a game with you. I'm so horrible. (laughs) No, throughout the week, here's the thing. I found myself with this very short fuse. I I found myself being very grumbly, very defensive, and my children bore the brunt of it. And over and over again, I find myself doing this. But in one of my more deliberate moments, once I paused and asked for more of Jesus and less of me, or that's a prayer I pray pray often, more of Jesus, less of me, I asked Sophie to come crawl up on the couch with me, and she jumped up on my lap, and we played a game while we together watched the Eagles. And then I apologized for her that night as I was talking to her bed. I said, Sophie, I'm sorry for being selfish. I'm sorry for the way I treated you today. And she said, Daddy, I forgive you. And isn't it beautiful how grace can restore relationships? The grace of a six-year-old can restore the the lack of love that her father had towards her. We can have perfect relationships. Did you guys know that? In theory, we can have perfect relationships. The question is, can we live by the one rule that will lead us towards them? The one rule to having perfect relationships is so stupidly simple, and yet it seems impossible, doesn't it? It's the one rule that was exemplified over and over and over again, 613 times in the Old Testament law. It's the one rule that Jesus took while he was on earth in his teaching, and he condensed those 613 rules, those 613 commandments down into two, and then upon his death, he illustrated it in such a brilliant way. He said the one rule to having perfect relationships is that we would love one another. Now, now hold on. Don't take any pictures of this slide quite yet, okay? Uh, because it requires someone packing. There are at least two challenges of saying something like this. First, When most people hear that we should merely love one another, how they interpret that, especially more and more in our day and age, is that we should just tolerate one another. Now, we oftentimes, I think, confuse tolerance with love, especially within our society. Tolerance, by definition, states that we should allow all behavior and practice, whether agreed with or not, without interference. And so, it's okay, tolerance says. You can be far from God where you hurt and where you hurt others and where you know that you hurt. And you can be far from God where you are damaged and where you are damaging other people and where you feel and you know that you're damaged deep inside as well. You can be far from God. It's okay. That's your choice. I can tolerate that. I'm not going to interfere with any of your decisions. And however you choose to be hurt and however you choose to hurt other people, it's okay because we live in such a tolerant society. Now, what's scary about a society that promotes tolerance as the greatest good, as ours does more and more and more and more and more, by the way, is that when you journey down the rabbit hole of tolerance long enough, what you'll end up with is a graceless society. 
Because tolerance not only says there are no wrongs, but it also celebrates it as truth. And in the end, tolerance will become accustomed to injustice. Tolerance will avoid, and it will turn away, and it will turn a blind eye, and it will build fences, and it will breed indifference, and it will create a world that no longer cares. That would be interesting, probably. (laughs) But this, unfortunately, is the direction our society is going. And we do it in the name of love. Did you, we, we do this. We, we confuse tolerance with love all the time. But love, my friends, love, simply speaking, is to will the good of the other. It's to do everything in my power to, to assist the betterment of your life. Love is disturbed and moved to action in the face of injustice. Love engages and it confronts and it opens doors for conversations. Love cares and honors and considers the universal dignity of all people. Love goes out and it leaves and it pursues those who are far from God and damaged where they are and embraces them in their totality, in the totality of both truth and of grace and invites them back into relationship, invites them home. Now the second challenge, though, is that love is basically a meaningless term in our society. Like, we can get a definition like this, to will the good of the other, that's fine, but it does not dismiss the fact that love is a meaningless term in our society. We have crammed so much into this one word that nearly every other culture and and every other language in world history has divided what we cram into this one word into several words. For instance, the Greek language had four different words that expressed different ideas and behaviors associated with this one word that we call love. There was eros, for instance, in the Greek language, which was a word that describes sexual desire or romantic love for another person. We get our term erotic from this Greek word um, for love. Eros is that feeling that you get when that special someone walks into the room, the butterflies in your stomach, that's, that's eros. It's the infatuation, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's, it's lust, it's what is so prevalent within our society. Doesn't our society focus on this above all else when it thinks of love? I think it does. Another word that they had for love was storge. It was a word that described a parental kind of love, a special, very unique love that a parent has for a child. And if, and if, you're not a parent, then honestly, you probably don't know this, but there is a special bond that a parent has with a child that is unexplainable outside of this particular kind of love. And then there is phileo, which is a word that described the affection of friendship. This is the, the love that we have for friends. It's the love I have for Mexican food or the, I mean, you guys love the Eagles. So I don't know why, but you do, right? Like you, you love things. It's the, it's the love that we have. For, I love chilies, right? Yeah. Like um, I phileo my friend. Filet of fish. That's right. You love filet of fish. Uh, Philadelphia comes from this word. The, the Philadelphia is a, is a conjunction of two Greek words, phileo and adelphos, the city of brotherly love. And so Philadelphia, right? So we love things. We love affection. It's a kind of love that we have. But when scholars are working on translating the Old Testament into, into Greek, they, they looked at all the kind of love that God expressed in the Old Testament, and they realized none of these were an appropriate word to describe God's love, a very unique kind of love for humanity. And so they developed a brand new word around the second century BC, before the New Testament came about. They developed a brand new word, a new term that would define the love of God. You probably all know what it is. It's agape. 
It's a very unique kind of love. It's unconditional. It doesn't matter what you look like or sound like or how you behave. Love is going to persist. Agape is enduring, meaning that it is going to last and it is going to be everlasting and it's not going to give up when things get hard. Agape is a choice, meaning once it is made, it does not rely on feelings or affection to make it true. Agape is other-oriented, meaning it looks to the other person's interests and the other person's life prior to looking at the self. Agape is self-sacrificial, meaning that it's always going to be costly, it's always going to be active, it's always going to defer to the other. Love like this promotes you above me. And this is why love is at the center of the biblical story. Because God designed us to function like himself, which is in love for others. To be giving and promoting the good of others above our own. And when that's done in relationship, it's a beautiful rhythm of pouring out and being filled up. Do you guys get this? Like we think, well, if I'm just going to be giving and giving and giving, then when am I ever going to be taken care of? But if you're in a relationship that is so bound together in this kind of agape love that God is instilling in us, then as I pour out, then I am being filled up by other people who are also pouring out into me. And that's this beautiful dance, this beautiful rhythm of pouring out and being filled up. But sin entered into the world and manipulated the nature that God had intended us to design. See, sin is twists who we are. It takes our hearts and it bends them inward. So we're self-serving and self-interested and and self-consuming. My friends, make any vice list you want. I mean, murder You know, greed, lust, gluttony, impatience, anger, you can add to that list however the sin manifests itself in your life. And every single sin that you could that you could put upon that list is really just a manipulation of the love that God had instilled within you. It is a selfish desire to choose myself over and above you. It is my selfish action and it's my selfish motive, and that's inherently what sin is. And here's the thing, right? This is, this is what makes Christmas so beautiful. Seeing us tearing each other apart, seeing what sin had done, causing us to go to war at each other. I mean, the very first people that, that, that the Bible describes, right? Cain and Abel, after Adam and Eve, what do they do? They kill each other. Sin drives us towards war. Sin drives us towards, towards fighting and, and towards chaos within our relationships. But God sees this and he enters into our war at Christmas and he reorients our hearts. See, God's purpose was never merely to save us. Yes, that's important. Yes, we get to be with him in heaven, great. But our salvation is a product of our becoming like Christ, which begins when we put our trust in him. When we acknowledge what he has done on our behalf. And all the promises that he's made now, that we trust in all of that. When we acknowledge our sin and our selfish hearts and and we surrender and we repent and we die to them, we are being made again or reborn with hearts that are no longer bent in on themselves, flowing towards us in selfish actions and self-consuming and self-interested desires. But we have hearts then that are bent outward in love for others. And this is why Jesus' followers are known by their love. Above all else, Jesus says, when the world looks at those who truly follow me, they will see people who are in love. Not love in an erotic sense. Not love is just like, hey, you know what? I kind of like you. I can tolerate you, sure. No, love in an agape, self-sacrificial, people who give of themselves for the betterment of their neighbor. He doesn't say that when people look at my followers that they're going to see people with a great church attendance record. 
He didn't say that they're going to see people who give a lot. They're not going to see people who said a prayer once upon a day or who can show their baptism certificate. He says they will be known by their agape. Their ability and their willingness to die to themselves so that another, the person next to them, might live. That they would give them themselves so the person next to them might improve. My friends, to be a Christian means to be remade in God's image, to represent him and to function as he functions, which is in love. And Jesus came then to offer a brand new relational paradigm, but it wasn't actually new. It was just expressed in a brand new way. And in fact, it was the paradigm for life set up from the very beginning. It had always just been written down and talked about it, and Jesus now comes to illustrate it in a brand new way. It's simple. It's compelling. It is demanding but it is oh so rewarding. And when understood correctly, and this is so important for our unbelieving world, when understood correctly, it is exactly what every single human heart is desperately longing for. And we know this when we are guilty and we are burdened with our conscience, when we feel shame, when we feel broken. We know this is what we are truly longing for in our world, I believe, does the same. So toward the end of his ministry, Jesus gathered with his followers, and he gives them this, this speech, you know, the speech, hey, guys, if you forget everything I said, please do not forget this. If you forget everything, remember this. At the end, he gives us the one rule that we were created for and establishes if we can follow it perfect relationships. Here's what he says. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. The vine was the source of life for the entire crop of grape. And so we ask, is there a false line? If Jesus is the true vine, is there a false line, uh, a false vine? And Jesus would say, absolutely, there's a false life. Absolutely, there's a false vine. Every time we plug into our selfish hearts, every time we plug into the life of ourself at the very center of our beings, that is a false vine. That is a false source of life. If it's not me, he would say, and then it's not in love, and it's not how we are created to be as human beings, then we are plugging into a false vine. Here's how I want you to understand your relationship with me, he would say. I'm the vine. My father is the gardener. They understood it, right? It made perfect sense to them. We don't live in Napa Valley, and so we have to kind of work at it a little bit here, okay? He says, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that's plugged into me that isn't producing fruit will be cut off. Because what's the point of wasting resources? What's the point of, of letting a, a vine be there that's not, uh, a branch be there attached to the vine that's not doing anything, that's not producing any fruit? And so if the vine, if the branch is not producing fruit, then we are going to cut it off. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he cuts off. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that there will be even more fruit. See, the goal clearly is some sort of fruit, right? Fruit bearing, which we say, what's the fruit? And he's going to answer that in just a second as he goes further into this, this story. And, and by the way, did you know that all of our lives are actually bearing fruit? Like, it doesn't matter what vine you're plugged into, you're, you're going to be bearing fruit. The, the life that you leave in the wake is the fruit that you bear. And so you have relationships, and you have been um, selfish in those relationships, and you have hurt people, and you have damaged people. You've borne fruit in those relationships. The life in the wake that you leave behind is the fruit that you're bearing. And we have all left wakes. Some of them have been more redemptive than others. Some of them have been more painful than others. But we are all bearing fruit. 
And so this seems kind of unfamiliar. He's talking about vines and branches, but it's actually very familiar because he's saying, I want you to allow me to bear fruit through you. All those times you've gone on your own selfish ways produce fruit, and it has hurt you, and it has hurt others. But connect your life to mine, and a different fruit will begin to be produced. So here's what then you've got to do. He says, remain in me, and I will remain in you. Stay close to me. Stay connected to me. Follow me. Why? Because no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And so that's interesting, right? All that rotten, bitter fruit that we have bit into, all those broken and hurting relationships that we've had in our past, all the angst and the anger and the impatience and the abuse and the use and the manipulation, it all comes because our hearts are connected to a very selfish source. That's where the fruit comes from. Your heart is connected to the wrong place. If you take the branch off the vine, the branch will die. And so if your life is producing painful fruit, and if your relationships are are painful because your life is connected into a painful source, a selfish source, then he would say, you need to cut that branch off. You need to step away from that, and you need to die to that. You need to repent, and the fruit of that branch then will die with it. Selfish actions, in other words, come from a very selfish heart. But if you're going to bear fruit of humanity, if you're going to bear the fruit that you were intended to bear, the fruit Jesus wants you to bear, then you have to stay connected. You have to stay plugged into him. And so now the application, he continues, neither can you, and he's talking to his disciples, Matthew, Mark, uh, Matthew, Peter, John, the rest sitting there, be Bear fruit, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain connected, plugged in to me. I am the vine, I am the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, I'm going to make you a promise, he says. If you remain in me, I'm going to make you a promise. You will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. You're not going to bear much fruit because you're going to learn to bear fruit on your own. That's not how you bear fruit. You just can't try harder, he's saying. No, your fruit as a follower of me is going to come because you are plugged in to me. And this is the promise of Jesus. Stay connected to me. Unplug from that other vine. Cut off that other vine. Reconnect into me and my life source then will flow through you and you will produce a different kind of fruit. And then he defines what he means by this fruit. Just as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Just as the Father has demonstrated his love through me, so I'm asking now to demonstrate my love for the world through you. Remain in my love. The same word he uses to refer to the branch staying connected to the vine. If you want to stay connected to the vine, then you need to stay connected to the love of God. And so the way we stay connected to the vine is to stay connected to God's love. And here's the surprise then. If you keep my commands... You will remain in my love, to which we say, of course, Jesus, I knew all along that this was just a bait and switch. Of course, you come along and you say, now, now, now we get it. Okay, Jesus, it's all about love. It's all about these warm feelings. It's all about being transformed and being changed. And now you come and say, of course, it's really just about rule following. At the end of the day, it's all, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. And this is what the world looks at us and they say, of course, you try to bait me in there with this relationship and this warm feeling and this transformed life. But at the end of the day, I knew it. It's all just about religion, isn't it? And Jesus' followers probably thought, hey, I thought we were heading down somewhere new too. And now we're back to commands. 
Okay, Jesus, fine, what are they, right? Somebody get a pen out because we better write these down. I bet you they're going to be a bunch of them. We better write these down. And so Jesus continues, my command is this. Wait, 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 wait. Jesus, command? Yeah, there's only one of them, he would say. There's only one of them. Love each other. Love each other. Jesus, we don't even need to write that down, they would say. That's easy. We know that, Jesus. That's, that's not even new to us. And Jesus would say, hold on, I'm not finished because this isn't about, hey, you know what, just love the one you're with. You know, it's not just about, you know, from our Western cultural point of view, just love one another. It's not about just tolerating one another. This is vine and branches. This is very specific kind of love. I want you to love each other as I, as I, because this is about a relationship with me. I want you to love as you have seen me demonstrate to you. I want you to love with the same brand, with the same type, with the same formula that you see me loving you with. Now, I want you to take that same love and I want you to apply it then to your neighbor. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And sitting in the room that night, they, they had some idea what Jesus was talking about, but they had, they had no idea the extent by which he meant and really what he meant through all this. But a day later, he demonstrated what this love looked like. And looking back after the resurrection and, and, and seeing the followers of Jesus powered by the Holy Spirit, they, they began to finally realize what Jesus was talking about. They, they finally they get it. They understood. This isn't some permissive kind of love. This isn't a, like, you know, we're just going to figure it out on our own kind of love. We're just going to conjure up the strength within ourselves to go love other people. This is the kind of love where, where we put others first, like Jesus did on the cross, where you lay down your life for your friend, where you defer your wishes and your thoughts to the other. This is the kind of love where you forgive regardless of what has been done to you and regardless of the offense. This is the kind of love where I take everything that I have going for me and I make it available to you. This is the kind of love where I do unto you as the Father through Christ has done unto me. Totally unique. So radical. And this is what Jesus means by abiding in him. It's not complicated, it's, it's not intangible, it's not really spiritual. It's about allowing the love that God has for me to flow through me, specifically onto those whom I have relationship with. St. Augustine said this, to kind of boil down what it means to live upon this planet. He says, you know what, love, and then just go do as you will. If love becomes the filter by which you put everything through, then you are following the commandment of Jesus. You are doing what you were designed to do as a human being. You are living the life that God had intended for you to live and created you to live. Love and then just go do whatever you want. If love is the filter, then just go and do whatever you want. It's not about like... Oh, man, we experience this all the time, don't we? I just, I wish that they would just do what I want them to do. I wish that if I could just control you and you would just do what I want you to do, when I want you to do it, in the manner by which I want it done, then maybe we'd be happy. 
It's not about the selfish ambition winning out. This is, I am dying to myself and my self-interest and my self-consumption and I'm laying it on the table and I'm pouring it out so that your life might be improved. Follow me, Jesus says. Learn from me. Come to me. Remain in me because I want to teach you how to love others as I have loved you. And if we could just grasp this and commit to this, my friends, I think we would discover our humanity, and I think we would discover the beginning to the pathway of perfect relationships. And as we'll discover next time, there's a lot of fine print to this. There's a lot of fine print to this. Have you ever noticed that the kind of person Jesus leads his followers to become is ultimately the kind of person we all want to become anyway? I mean, how many of your relationships would, would just thrive under, <laughs> under some self-sacrifice? But all the angst and all the bitterness and all the, man, it's just, it's, it, it comes from this selfish, self-reigning heart where I put myself above you. And so it's like, you know what? I don't really care how this relationship ends up because it's really about me in the end anyway. But if we could just submit to this, I think we would find that we would be on a great, beautiful pathway towards having perfect relationships. My friends, there is healing, there is reconciliation, there is forgiveness, there is love to be had, but there is some really fine print, some nitty-gritty details that we're going to start unpacking over the next two weeks as we conclude the series. I want to invite Emily Ford. We're going to sing one final quick song as we conclude our service together this morning. And so, no, the, the one rule to having perfect relationships is not that we simply love one another, but rather that we love one another the same way the same way that God, through Jesus, has loved us. And my friends, there is a world of difference between, hey, just let's love one another. And loving one another the same way that God has loved us. Love is not permissive. This love is not undefined. Love is not anything goes. Let's just be happy for one another. Let's just tolerate everybody's behavior. No, God exemplified the kind of love that we are to have one another through Jesus Christ. God defines our humanity, and he defines it by his own nature, self-giving, self-sacrificing. So I invite you back here next week for part three, and then the, the following week, part four, as we conclude this series. As we look at the fine print, and we break it down to the nitty-gritty, we get ultra-practical on what it means to truly love one another the same way God, through Jesus, has loved us.